My basic motivation for being a libertarian had never been economic but moral. While I was convinced that the free market was more efficient and would bring about a far more prosperous world than statism, my major concern was moral, the insight that coercion and aggression of one man over another was criminal and iniquitous and must be combated and abolished. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today we're going to talk about enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism with Scott Horton. Scott, where's the best place to find the book? Uh, well, the easiest thing, of course, is Amazon. But if you go to enoughalready.net, it'll forward you on to the page at the Libertarian Institute there. And we've got links to eight or 10 different sources. So you can get it from Powell's books and smash words and scribd and I don't know more like that. So Barnes and Noble as well. So if you don't like Amazon, there's plenty of competition where you can get it too. Nice. That link will be in the description below. I want to quote from Osama bin Laden in tactical recommendations. He says, then the fighters realized that the gang in the White House could not see things clearly and that their leader, that idiot they obey, was claiming that we envied their lifestyle when the truth, which this pharaoh would like to hide, is that we are attacking them because of their injustice toward the Muslim world and especially Palestine and Iraq, as well as their occupation of the land of the two sanctuaries. This is a quote from Osama bin Laden. Is this the reason or is it really because they're scared that America is a hurdle to them spreading a worldwide Islamic caliphate? Uh, well, yeah, both. Right. So uh, I think the important thing about that. And because there's another sort of point here, too, you know, bin Laden is a mass murderer. Right. So who cares what he thinks and who could believe any of the words that he says he's a murderer, then he's also de facto to be taken as a liar, right? Screw him. Why quote him? But the point is how quotable he was and that when he said the things that he said, that was his pitch to get people to agree with him, to pick up a cause. This is a tiny little group of bandits trying to take on a superpower. So he was not just justifying his actions. He was trying to recruit new people to help him along with his agenda. And so he was focusing on the things that the Americans were doing. Now, at the same time, the, you know, it's essentially a fantasy on their part, certainly at that time, the absolute ridiculous pipe dream that one day we could create our caliphate with bin Laden or whoever we like at the head of it, if only the Americans weren't standing in our way by supporting all the local dictators. Now, the reality is, Again, we're talking about a few hundred bandits, mercenaries left over from the last war where they had been run by their own country's intelligence agencies, helping them to go fight in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And so they didn't have the power to overthrow the king of Saudi Arabia or the dictator, the military dictatorship in Egypt or the king of Jordan or Saddam Hussein in Iraq or the Ayatollah in Iran or anybody they wanted to see overthrown. You know, all they could do is essentially be mad. But then they were able to rally their own forces together on the essentially the compromise that let's attack America first because you were they were trying to bring together people from all these different countries. So some people wanted to focus on attacking the King of Jordan and, you know, whatever the different uh, in Egypt and Saudi mostly was the argument. So they said, well, listen, this is a doctrine we'll compromise on and settle on. We'll focus on the Americans, the far enemy. And we'll attack them, we'll bog them down, bleed them to bankruptcy the same way we did with the Soviet Union. And once they're no longer here 
to back our kings and dictators and presidents and warlords, then we'll be able to accomplish our revolution. So that was the long game to provoke America into reacting, giving itself their own Vietnam, just as we had helped these same Mujahideen uh, do to the Soviet Union with the uh, Afghans in the 1980s and to do it again to ourselves. And it seems to have worked. And if you go down the list of bin Laden's goals, he is trying to weaken and bankrupt and expel America, which is a long-term process, but it's going on now. And we're certainly on the downhill slope of this, of American dominance in the Middle East, but also to weaken all of America's uh, and discredit, you know, America's uh, local dictators in the region that our government supports, and then to radicalize the populations of these countries in, you know, a political and uh, religious sense. And, you know, we've seen revolution and economic destabilization, political destabilization, and a return to hardcore sectarianism and fundamentalism by some in these wars, especially in Iraq War II and in Syria. And so, um, you know, they have not put, you know, bin Laden or or his his terrorist son Hamza on the throne in Saudi Arabia, and and they still haven't put Zawahiri on the throne in Egypt, right? This would have been the ultimate goal of these guys, probably, right, to rule their own home countries. So they've fallen short of that. But they did create a caliphate in Western Iraq and Eastern Syria for three solid years, and erased the Sykes-Pico Western-drawn border between Iraq and Syria. And some jackass named Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was able to go up there like Mussolini on the balcony, like Osama bin Laden himself, essentially, and claim that he was the Caliph Ibrahim, the divinely ordained ruler of the new caliphate to usher in the end of the world. And this absolute madness that at the time of 2001, and the attack on the United States, Keith, this is the absolute ultimate ridiculous pipe dream of Osama bin Laden, right? And at the time of, you know, shortly after they attacked us and the Bush administration was exploiting all this fear, this was the height of their most unrealistic and ridiculous and insulting propaganda against the American people, that there's an Islamo-fascist caliphate out there that we're fighting. Where? Between Baathist Iraq and Baathist Syria and Saudi? Arabia and Hashemite Jordan, where's the caliphate? It's not in Egypt where Hosni Mubarak is the secular military dictator under America's thumb for the last 30 years. Well, at that time, 20, you know, 25. So, you know, um, essentially, America made all of Osama bin Laden's agenda to, you know, nine out of 10 steps of everything that he and his group were trying to accomplish with the September 11th attack and their war against the United States for them. And they've been strategic allies, but who's Zoom and who, Keith, right? The Americans, they get to use these guys as mercenary shock troops to fight against their Shiite enemies in places like Syria and Yemen, sure. But uh, they get to use American wealth and power and weapons in order to fight against those same Shiites for their own reasons. and and, uh, you know, carrying out the agenda of their own country's intelligence agencies and that coincide with their own. And let's say America stopped intervening right now, finally just knocked it off. 
look at the mess that we've made over there in the last 20 years. Never even mind Afghanistan on the other side of Iran. But just think about what's going on in Mesopotamia and the Levant. It's just an absolute catastrophe. And as Jeff Huber said, I'd love to quote him, the great antiwar.com columnist and humorist, Osama bin Laden, dead and loving it. And what does this guy care if he's been shot in the head, man? That was all he ever wanted was to die getting shot in the head while having just overseen all of his dreams come true from here is hiding in the attic. And, and in fact, I like, I like quoting this. He says, he says, uh, eat your heart out, Charlemagne et to Julius Caesar. And how do you like them apples, Alexander? Because here is the world's greatest general who moved <laughs> the most powerful armies that ever existed from hiding in the attic, even from his own wife up there. But meanwhile, he controls the destinies of a hundred million men every day to do whatever he wants and play out all of his games. And think about, sorry, I'm rambling, but I know it's good. The opposite of that is if it had just been, you know what, let's all stop and listen to Ron Paul who warned us this was going to happen. And let's see what he wants to do. Oh, he wants to send special operations forces to kill only bin Laden and Zawahiri and their, you know, 100 closest friends next to them. And that's it. And call the whole war off. And has, as he said explicitly, and I quote in my book, Fool's Aaron, he says explicitly, because we have, we're in a very delicate situation here where we must hold the guilty responsible, but we must let the rest of the Muslim world know that they are wrong about us, that we are not their enemy, that we do not hate Muslims, that we do not hate Arabs, that's not our agenda. And the only reason we were there was to protect them from the Soviet communists. But you know what? That was a long time ago now, and it's time for us to go. And that would have been what he had done. And imagine the results of that. And, and, and the possibilities that would have been opened up there for America to actually, if they believed in this freedom agenda stuff at all, Keith, to actually lecture them about their lack of freedom without being blood-soaked hypocrites at the same time, or at least no longer. I want to quote from the president of the Council on Foreign Relations with regard to, uh, he talks about how the Cold War ended, but... Right during our uh, celebration, we had to uh, we had to take on another enemy. This was followed less than a year later by a remarkable coming together of the world to turn back Saddam Hussein's effort to conquer Kuwait, something that would have had enormous consequences if it had been allowed to stand. Toward the end, the United States worked closely with 14 other members of the UN Security Council to repudiate Iraq's aggression and to establish a subsequently enforce a sanctioned regime designed to ensure that Iraq would not benefit from its conquest and would pay an enormous price for it. A large coalition of dozens of countries contributing in different ways was built to make sure Iraqi aggression did not threaten Saudi Arabia. And when diplomacy, backed by sanctions, failed to dislodge Iraq from Kuwait to force Iraq out of the country and restore Kuwait's independence and government, final quote here, he says, it is important to Underscore, though, that the U.S. involvement was strictly humanitarian as it did not attempt to bring about a separate Kurdish state in the north of Iraq or a separate Shia state in the south or to overthrow the existing political authority in Baghdad. Scott, what's wrong with helping people? Oh, man. <laughs> Boy, well, I'll tell you what. In my new book, there's a whole chapter, or I guess it's a subchapter in, in the massive chapter one there is on Iraq War One. That puts the lie to every bit of that. You know, 
what happened was Iraq had a legitimate border dispute with Kuwait and the Kuwaitis were overproducing from their shared oil wells and they were being extremely rude and calling in all of their loans and insulting the Iraqis dignity every way that they could. And I make the case in the book that I don't really believe that this was deliberate, but that in effect, they trapped Saddam Hussein into the war. The CIA and CENTCOM were encouraging the Kuwaitis to be tough and brave and stand up to him. While at the same time, the State Department was telling Saddam Hussein, yeah, go ahead, break their knees, occupy the northern oil fields. What do we care? As the American ambassador later said to the New York Times, well, we didn't think he was going to take the whole country. Uh, and there were you know, statements. It wasn't just April Glaspie's meeting with Saddam Hussein, but also Margaret Tutwiler. And I'm sorry, I forgot the man's name. There's another uh, State Department official. Both testified to Congress that we wouldn't do anything. We don't have a treaty with Kuwait. We're not responsible for that. And what do we care if Saddam invades there? At the same time, though, Keith, and this is why. And this could be BS, but I don't think it is. Um, I think I think this coincides with other things I know about these characters. It seems like the the official history anyway is that Wolfowitz and Cheney at the State Department were extremely concerned about this. This is when Cheney was the Secretary of Defense and Wolfowitz, I guess, was Deputy Secretary of Defense for Policy. And they were, you know, really worried about it and tried to send a letter warning Hussein not to do it. But then Pete Williams, who you know from NBC News, walked it back. And then they got H.W. Bush, the president, to send a message, but it seemed they thought too conciliatory and almost like permission itself to go ahead. And they were really upset and wanted to send another letter saying, hey, don't get me wrong. What I meant was don't do it at that point. But then it was too late and Iraq invaded. And apparently Hussein had been, you know, confident enough in his reassurances from the State Department that he thought, well, what the hell? They don't care if I take the northern oil fields. Maybe I'll take the whole country. And he went ahead and he went all the way to Kuwait City and all the way to the shore and took over the whole country. But even at that point, Keith, the um, entire Bush National Security Cabinet that night agreed that, and that was um, Colin Powell was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Cheney was the Secretary of Defense. The National Security Advisor was General Brent Scowcroft. And the Secretary of State was James Baker III. These men all said, man, we don't care. We're not doing anything about it. We're drawing the line at Saudi Arabia. And we're going to warn Saddam Hussein that if you invade Saudi, we're going to carpet bomb the crap out of you. Don't even think about it. But they were going to draw the line at Saudi Arabia, Keith, until Margaret Thatcher, whose government was heavily dependent on Kuwaiti investments in their debt and whose major corporations had major investments in Kuwaiti oil, she went and said, well, Bush, don't you go wobbly on me now at the Aspen Security Conference. And her staff later described this as giving H.W. Bush a backbone transplant and encouraging him that he better not back down. And how can he be wobbly standing next to a woman who's saying we must do the right thing that, you know, reduces the last of Bush's macho. He'd already been, as Bill Hicks quite aptly pointed out, in fact, George Carlin had a take on the same thing that Bush had already been called a wimp for so long. And you know, there's so many different ways to elaborate that. Everybody go listen to Hicks and Carlin on Iraq War One. OK, but anyway, um, this was a big deal. And so Bush then said this will not stand this aggression. And then he spent the, the entire second half of the year 1990 
refusing to negotiate with Saddam Hussein, who was begging them for a way out of there that didn't make him the world's biggest pushover, right? He just needed to save a little bit of face. If he betrayed that much weakness, he'd be killed and overthrown in a coup uh, by his own regime, or at least that was the real risk that he was running. And that was the American government's assessment at the time was that, you know, they knew that he needed to save some face. And all he wanted was these two uninhabited islands and an easement so he could get there and sell some oil in the Persian Gulf. And, you know, at the end, he ended up, his last offer was the Americans have to promise to leave the Middle East someday. And the Israelis have to promise to withdraw from the uh, occupied Palestinian territories someday. In other words, absolute tissue paper promises that wouldn't have meant anything whatsoever at all was you give me anything to say and then bush said no any concession is a reward for aggression and we'll we'll never do anything he must absolutely bow down which they knew was the offer that he could not accept the situation he could not accept that he would have to be you know attacked and driven out because he would have to have some minimal something to show for it. And I document all of that in my book um, of all of the difference. It's really Murray Wass at New York Newsday and a couple others at the New York Times and Noam Chomsky who did the best work on that at the time. Now and the- they refused to accept his surrender and then they launched this massive war that, you know, you, you uh, listed him saying, well, geez, we didn't want to go too far because our mandate was only to go far enough. But then look at the situation that the, that put them in. Um, and in fact, does he quote there? Does he talk about the Shiite uprising and their deliberations about what to do there after the war? Or, no. or you're going to say something else. Go ahead. Uh, no, he uh, mentions uh, the amount of uh, Shia increase in power after Iraq War II, but uh, doesn't uh, go into it uh, at all afterwards. Uh, there's so but, much. But to in get Iraq through. War One, after after Iraq War One, he doesn't talk about. The aftermath of the Shiite uprising and, and Saddam he crushing the rebellion? He doesn't even talk about the sanctions. He briefly passes over sanctions. Yeah, you would have thought it, there, that there was just a billboard that said yeah. Saddam is bad, and that was like a sanction. Uh, in, in a short amount of time, can you explain what the sanctions were and their devastating effect? Yeah, well, so, you know, sanctions is such a euphemism. But, you know, if you call it a blockade, that's not exactly right because it's not really a matter of navies floating offshore preventing goods from coming in. No one's even trying it because this was United Nations Security Council resolutions binding on the whole world. It was illegal to sell to Iraq. And so they were under a total global economic blockade. And the way it works on the Security Council is that any one major power, basically the victors of World War II are the permanent members of the Security Council, right? So the US, UK, Britain, France, Russia, and China and any one of them can veto anything. And so there's no point in anyone issuing a new resolution and the sanctions when everybody knows America's gonna, going to vote no, America being Bill Clinton's government, is going to vote no and continue the sanctions. So in other words, it was essentially up to the Americans to ever lift them. And if as long as the Clinton government wanted to keep them there, I should say the Bush senior government too was in power for a year and a half after the end of the war and kept them. And on the stated purpose of achieving regime change, we will not lift the sanctions until Hussein is out of power, even though we just skipped over it. But they had encouraged an uprising against him that might have succeeded. 
at set that the Bush government then betrayed that revolution that he encouraged to rise up, refused to support them in any way, and allowed Saddam Hussein to use his helicopters and tanks to crush the insurrection. And then they used that as the excuse to stay, even though the crushing of the insurrection was over. They didn't need to stay and, and create no-fly zones over Iraq to protect the people. They had their one chance and had lost it. Uh, because of America. But then now the idea was, we're going to keep these sanctions so that the people who now no longer have the slightest chance of overthrowing Saddam will become so hungry and so miserable that every civilian in Iraq will rise up and overthrow the guy. And if they don't, well, then that's their tough luck. That's their responsibility. And I quote the military men explained to the Washington Post, and this is an absolute, absolute authoritarian dictatorship of the Baathist party. This is essentially a fascist dictatorship in every way. The only, um, as I was referring to there a minute ago, the only popular sovereignty Hussein had was among his generals. And even then he'd kill them first. You know what I mean? Um, but if there was anyone who could have overthrown him, it would have been his own closest guys, not the people of the country in any way. And yet the Air Force guys told the Washington Post, hey, listen, it's their country. And ultimately, boy, is it a long way to ultimately, Keith, ultimately, the people of Iraq are responsible for the government they have. Now, this is exactly what Osama bin Laden said about us, yeah. that we are responsible for this government that would do such a thing to the people of Iraq on the exact same excuse that the civilians lives are forfeit because they're not doing enough to overthrow the government that we don't like. And then the Bill Clinton government kept those sanctions all the way through January 2001. And so did W. Bush. And when he came in, it was so obvious that and they used it as part of their ploy. Look, we can't just keep the sanctions forever. You're right. Bleeding heart, Keith. What are we going to do? Keep these people under embargo forever? We got to go in there and liberate them. Yeah. So that then they'll be prosperous and healthy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And now that's, you know, a million and a half dead ago. Unbelievable. So uh, Richard Haas uh, goes into a number of examples of why regime change uh, is actually a good thing. P page 33, the occupying powers reformed the countries in their image after the Second World War, which translated into democracy for all of Japan and in Germany as well for the part which became East Germany controlled by the USSR. Nearly three quarters of a century later, Germany and Japan stand out as among the few successful examples of what today would be called regime change followed by nation or state building. His second reason is that for its part, the Soviet Union did what it could to promote communist regimes around the Western Hemisphere and succeeded in Cuba and Nicaragua. It had the advantage of aiding individuals and movements fighting against unpopular authoritarian governments that offered little to their people. So historically, yeah. Germany and Japan good regime change. Historically, the Soviets have engaged in regime change and it worked for them. Therefore, we have good reason to believe regime change wars are justified. <laughs> How do you respond? That's so funny, man. I've, I want to <laughs> read that book and also I don't. Um, yeah, good old Richard Haas, huh? So look at Germany and Japan. I was raised on this. You're a bit younger than me. I don't know if they still inculcate you with this the same way they did me. Uh, but yeah, it's true, right? That in a way, America was this benevolent conqueror and we didn't make MacArthur the military dictator of Japan from now on uh, just to install, finish the regime change and install the parliamentary government to our liking. And the same sort of thing happened in Germany as well. And so then the narrative was, 
hey, when America beats you in war, we make a friend out of you. We'll build you up, rebuild your country for you and help make you rich and make you our friend and our ally, which sounds nice. But the reality was we were making the military satellites of our world empire was what was really happening. And at the time, first of all, most importantly, they were both under threat from the Soviet Union. And so you might ally with the Americans and maybe worse to protect you from the USSR, which was a real threat to Western Europe and to uh, Japan. In fact, that was why the Japanese surrendered. It wasn't the nukes. It was because they knew the, the Soviets were coming. And would you rather live under Truman's dictatorship or Stalin's? And so it, the choice was easy for them. And so with the threat of the Soviet Union and communism, uh, you know, communist invasion holding over their head, being held over their head, then it was a lot easier to convince them to go along with us. But also the Japanese had already had a parliamentary government and had been allies with the British and had been, you know, adopting a lot of Western customs as far as independent judiciaries and all these kinds of things in a way that there was plenty to tap into there and former leaders of that previous government to bring into power and this kind of deal. And they had a compliant emperor who had a lot of authority over the people to say, there won't be an insurgency. We've been whooped. It's a matter of honor now that we go along with this MacArthur guy and what he says. Now, that's a pretty unique circumstance. You know what I mean? That's, you know, got, got real lucky there. And then of course in West Germany, um, you know, they didn't have an emperor to obey like that, but it wasn't too hard to create a parliamentary democracy there under American dominance and control, uh, you know, on that side of the line. And again, for the main reason that the Soviet Union was being held over their head. And so they had to choose and they'd been absolutely decimated in the war, too. And so, you know, they got part of that Marshall Plan. You know, it wasn't just the, the allies. It was the Germans, too, got their welfare check, too, to help rebuild at that time. So, um that was a huge part of it. But then what a propaganda coup, because then that becomes the justification for waging war then in Korea, even if we got to kill two million people and in Vietnam, where we got to kill three, if you include the Laotians and the Cambodian and the Cambodians or supporting dictators like Suharto in Indonesia, who killed a million, you know, of his own people in the East Timorese or, you know, all kinds of right wing dictatorships that, uh, you know, proverbially throw their left-wing dissidents out of helicopters at the, you know, slightest whim, you know, up and down, all through Latin America and through Asia, all the dirty wars of the Middle East. And, you know, I haven't gotten to it yet. There's uh, this new book by a guy named Vincent Bevins. I'm sorry, I forget the title right now, but it's all about the history of America's dirty wars in the Cold War. Then it's just millions upon millions of people killed, uh, you know, it's easy to hide behind. Well, it's, you know, native soldiers doing the killing, but it's the white officers and the, and the, you know, the American politicians and CIA men behind it and this kind of thing. So that's no different than under the British Raj. It's just the American one. And, um, so, you know, to invoke Japan as the excuse to then do whatever we want to whoever we want. I mean, ask the Koreans, the Vietnamese and the Iraqis and the Syrians and the Yemenis, if they think that the Japan excuse still holds up for the USA in the year 2021. And then as far as the Soviets having successful regime changes, 
emphasize the part about how, well, and it was pretty easy for the Reds to take over in Nicaragua because the right-wing government that they were replacing there of Antonin Somoza was the most right-wing, brutal, illegitimate fascist dictatorship. And that's the reason for the success of all leftist Marxist revolutionary movements through all of Latin America is the American supported right wing fascist dictators who, you know, absolutely wage war against their own populations. You wonder why people embrace absolutely ridiculous socialist policies in Latin America. It's because the socialist leaders are the ones standing up to the Yankees. That's why. Independence first. Same thing in Vietnam, of course. On page 119, he talks about Afghanistan. He wrote the excellent book, Fool's Errand, uh, which I, of course, will put in the description. Richard Haas says, in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, the United States presented the Taliban government with a stark choice, either end its relationship with al-Qaeda and hand al-Qaeda's leaders over to the international authorities or face the consequences. The Taliban government refused to take these steps, and the United States committed to ousting the government. Something accomplished over the next few months as U.S. intelligence personnel and military forces cooperated with members of the so-called Northern Alliance, a loose coalition of anti-Taliban tribes with roots in these parts of Afghanistan, not dominated by the Pashtuns, an ethnic group most located in the south of the country that constituted a polarity of its population and the core of Taliban support. Therefore, they were cooperating, really giving power to al-Qaeda. That Therefore, was like one invasion, sentence, wasn't it? Yeah. Was yeah. that one sentence? Yeah. Uh, he was the, right that the Pashtuns are predominant in the south, so that's one thing. That's <laughs> a lot okay, of claims. But, but, but I, that's okay. even a longer sentence than in Fool's Aaron you could find probably. The major claim, Al-Qaeda attacked America, Taliban is giving cover for Al-Qaeda, therefore the root of the issue was the Taliban, and the invasion and regime change in Afghanistan is justified. How do you respond? Well, it's a damn dirty lie. And in fact, emphasis on him saying that the demand was that they turn him over to international authorities. But they offered to turn him over to the uh, Organization of Islamic Conference. In other words, any nation state that's a member of the Organization of Islamic Conference, which is, of course, created by America and Saudi Arabia in the first place. And um, they were told to go to hell. They said, well, we just want to see some evidence. And Colin Powell went on Meet the Press, the Secretary of State, said, we're going to publish a dossier uh, explaining how this is all Osama bin Laden's fault, which is easy enough. They knew al-Qaeda was going to attack us all summer long, of course. And so that's even the official story and also some of the critical ones. Um, and so they could have published evidence of the ties there and instead said, no, we'll provide no evidence. So then um, that was a few days, what, a week after something, uh, the attack. Then later in September, they said, OK, we'll turn them over to the Pakistanis. And General Musharraf in Pakistan was the one who turned that down. But he was under America's total control at that point. So if he did that as a betrayal of the Americans, I don't believe it. And there's no reports that that's right. He did that. He must have done that. It's not conclusive, but it's all but conclusive that he did that on orders from the Americans or, you know, in a joint decision made with the Americans to turn that offer down. And at that point, they were still requesting to see evidence. Um, and then they said after the bomb started falling on October the 8th, they said, OK, OK. 
will turn him over to any third nation in the world. And then they didn't mention Israel. I think probably not Israel, <laughs> but they had to turn him over to evidently, uh, you know, according to them, they were willing to take not just bin Laden, but his Al Qaeda guys, arrest them all and extradite them to any third country in the world. Canada, Mexico, England, France, our very best friends who, you know, in many cases, and it's the same thing with the Muslim countries too. That could have been Egypt or Jordan or Malaysia or any one of these countries that's friendly to the United States where the guys would have what landed on the tarmac and then taken off again for their extradition to America <laughs> without even getting out of the plane. Right. Yeah. Um, that would have been fine. Absolutely acceptable under any, you know, reasonable administration run by reasonable men without an agenda here. And it was rejected. But then they offered fine. They said, forget evidence. We don't need evidence. And we'll turn them over to any third country in the world. And Bush said, too late. So they just dropped every demand. They were ready to go. And, um, and it was confirmed. You know, the American intelligence officials said, well, that may be right, but we don't care. You know? And wow. so then it was on. And look, the reality is that Mullah Omar hated Osama bin Laden, right? And bin this Laden, is who NBC called the father of the Taliban. Yeah, he was the dictator. He was the leader. I don't know exactly his exact title, but he was the leader of the Taliban government there. And he had every reason to resent bin Laden. You know, when bin Laden first got there in 96, um, I forget if Rabani, this warlord Rabani, either had just been killed or was about to be killed. But that's who bin Laden was expecting to be hosted by. He had to figure out, okay, who are these Taliban guys? I got to get along with them now. That wasn't his exact set. And then, um, you know, essentially, so here's this guy who's like a worldwide Leninist revolutionary, right? He's trying to turn over the entire Middle Eastern order from, you know, the Indian subcontinent to the Mediterranean Sea and on to Nigeria, right? That's bin Laden's plan, right? Set the whole damn world on fire. Well, this guy, Mullah Omar, had already taken the capital city that year, 1996, with the help of the United States and, of course, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and the support of the Bill Clinton government, had just taken over that country. And as the old saying goes, and I don't know who coined this, I should look it up because I keep quoting it, that a radical becomes a conservative the day he seizes the capital. Right now that I've won and I'm a dictator, enough of your world revolution stuff. Let's just have a revolution in one country, Afghanistan. Right. Um, so said Thomas Jefferson and Leon Trotsky and Mullah Omar. Revolution in one country will be more than enough. Thank you for, you know, for us to handle. And so then here comes bin Laden is nothing but trouble. And of course, bin Laden is the son of a billionaire. His partner's Wahri is a surgeon from Cairo. And these are wealthy, well-educated men from the world. The Taliban are hillbillies from deepest, darkest Pashtunistan. They don't know nothing about nothing. They had, knew virtually nothing of the outside world. And so then bin Laden and the bin Ladenites treated them like trash. You know, it's like a bunch of hoity-toity Boston Brahmins uh, among a bunch of, you know, NASCAR folk or whatever, you know. They just treat them with the utmost of contempt. And so guess what? The feeling was kind of mutual that we don't really like you guys very much either. And there's a great book about this called An Enemy We Created by Kuhn and Lynn Shoten. And they just proved this case in absolute just 
incredible detail over and over again of the strained relationship between these two. And you know what? Milton Bearden, who had helped run, he was at one time or maybe most of the time, the chief of station running the Afghan war in the 1980s for the CIA against the Soviets there when we backed the Mujahideen in that war. He told the Washington Post just after September 11th, listen, we've been negotiating with the Taliban. They hate bin Laden and they want to give him up to us. And we should not be bombing the Taliban. We should be bombing al-Qaeda. In fact, Keith, now that I'm thinking about it, Condoleezza Rice and others in the government at the time, at the highest level, she was the national security advisor. She and some of the CIA were saying, we should not bomb the Taliban at all. We should only be bombing the Arabs and showing the Taliban that, look, man, we're really not trying to bomb you, but don't make us bomb you. We're trying to separate the Taliban away from al-Qaeda. But then Rumsfeld and the others were like, no, we don't want to do that. We want to separate them together is what we want to do um, and conflate them together. Um, and so that we can conflate, continue on conflating them then with with Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq and whoever else that we want. And so that was that. But honestly, if they had just dealt with this honestly, in fact, one more thing, Milton Bearden said the Taliban, one example that he gave was the Taliban said to the Americans, hey, guess what? We lost bin Laden. He's out falconing somewhere and we don't know where he is. Hint, hint, go ahead and whack him right now. And we'll say that, sorry, he was out falconing in the countryside somewhere. He was outside of our protection. We were trying to find him to keep him safe, but we were unable to because of his wild and, and uh, risky ways. And so that's his own problem and not our fault. And we, you know, of course, we're honor bound to protect a guest, but not if he's out in the countryside somewhere where we can't protect him, where we told him not to go. And so it's sure not our fault the CIA killed him. But meanwhile, they were the ones telling the CIA, telling the Americans, he's out falconing, go and get him. And then Milton Bearden is quoting this to the Washington Post, Keith, and saying, listen, they're saying, go and kill him. And we're saying, hand him over, towelhead. And they're going... <laughs> Yeah, but go and kill him. We're, we're handing him over to you, man. That's what we're doing. And as he put it, the Americans just don't speak that kind of language. They're just, you know, it's like your junior high school gym coach idiot over there handling this. It's <laughs> that, you know, the intellect of the people in charge here. And so they just won't speak the language of accepting, of, of offering surrender. They can't even hear it when it's being laid in their lap. The article you cite in Fool's Errand is Bush rejects Taliban offer to hand bin Laden over from The Guardian, October 14th, 2001. So it's widely recognized that this is a real thing. It, it I didn't think that it was real until I had read Fool's Errand. Um, he, uh, Richard Haas talks about Iraq War II. Saddam's refusal to cooperate fully with UN weapons inspectors further reinforced the prevailing view that he had something to hide to be clear are you just trying to tire me out today with this or what i'm sorry go ahead one more to be clear what the united states did in 2003 was launch a preventative action one aimed at stopping a gathering threat in this case what was thought to be iraq's development of nuclear weapons What's wrong with taking a preventative step to stop a crazy tyrant like Saddam from gaining nukes? And, you know, it's funny, too, Keith, because I think Richard Haas, didn't he sort of have a reputation of being more with Powell and Armitage on the skeptical side and reluctant to do this war? 
Yes. You know? Uh, yeah. He, he, he's he not a neoconservative. He's, he, he's a he CFR was, guy, you know? He says that it was a mistake, but he'll still defend, you know, it, it to like up till the very last end, but then say, well, there might be uh, some yeah. unintended consequences. And of course, so, look, Powell and Armitage got us into the war too. They didn't, they said, geez, are we sure we want to do this? And then they were told, yes, we want to do this. And they said, okay. And they went along with it all. So I'm not trying to acquit them. And I guess he must have been more of a Colin Powellite than a Richard Pearl guy. But at the end of the day, it doesn't make that much difference. Um, what a bastard. So look, the, the weapons inspectors were back in the country by the end of November of 2002. So they had five months to traipse around Iraq. And everywhere they went, they could find nothing. And they said so. Well, look, the Americans give us this intelligence. We go to the place where they say that the thing is happening and it's not happening. And as I show <laughs> in my book, the inspectors debunked the aluminum tubes lie. Look, the Washington Post debunked it in September of two. But the weapons inspectors on the ground in Iraq went to the factory and found the order for the aluminum tubes. They're for rockets. And they found other aluminum tubes just like it. And why do you need this special anodized coating? Because of the weather. And it was all absolutely you know, every uh, dotted I and cross T of the Iraqis version of the aluminum tubes being for God dang Katusha rockets for shooting out of the back of your pickup truck being for making aluminum tubes was absolutely and thoroughly discredited before long before Bush's speech in uh, what, you know, a solid two months, really, because the, the State of the Union isn't until like the end of January. Right. So this is the very, very beginning of, of December was when they debunked the tube. And then Bush gets up there and says the tubes and also the famous 16 words that Saddam's trying to buy uranium from Africa. When he had yellow cake in the country and the CIA, 14 times the CIA told the neocons in the vice president's office, you can't put that in the president's speech. It's not true. And then finally they gave up and said, ah, what the hell, go ahead and put it in there. And so they went ahead and used that for the State of the Union in 2003. Even though, Iraq had yellow cake uranium, which is partially refined ore, which you, what are you going to do? Throw it at somebody and hit them in the head? Um, you know, I guess if you put it in their milkshake, you might give them cancer or something. I don't know. Um, they had a ton of it, a ton of it sitting under IAEA lock and seal in the country left over from their 1980s obsolete and closed down nuclear program that the IAEA had never removed the uranium. They just left it there because it was essentially harmless sitting there. So if Hussein had wanted it, the inspectors weren't in the country from 1998 through 2002. All he would have had to do was cut the lock on the storage locker, take that uranium ore, refine it, somehow convert it to uranium hexafluoride gas, and then introduce it into these aluminum tubes for Katusha rockets and pretend that the, you're going to somehow make an, a Manhattan project and an atom bomb out of it. The whole thing was absolutely ridiculous, and they knew they were lying, Keith. And, and all through, from, from December through March, the nuclear inspectors and the chemical inspectors all said, we cannot find anything that you're talking about here. There's no production of sarin, no production of mustard, no, no warehouses full of this stuff. The mobile biological weapons labs, they brought the rat who said that it was true to the place where he said it was true. And they go, okay, show us the stuff. 
Total hoax. He knew nothing. The whole thing was a made-up thing, a made-up game. You can read a lot of this in the Senate investigations, you know, years later when the Senate, you know, published a lot of this stuff. It's right there in the PDF format there. Uh, Richard Haas quotes uh, John F. Kennedy on page 158. As President John F. Kennedy once warned, there are risks and costs to a program of action, but they are far less than the long-range costs and risks of comfortable inaction. So it's very easy for you to say, well, we should have sat back and not done anything in the face of the evils of the world, Saddam, Gaddafi, Assad. But if you sit back and allow these tyrannies to grow, then they're just going to expand further and engage in more unjust actions. Therefore, action is justified. How do you respond? No, it's just nonsense, right? There's no reason in the world to believe that all these nation states in the Middle East would be at war with each other if America wasn't there. All the worst violence is led by the Americans. And again, if the Americans hadn't been telling the Kuwaitis that, yeah, we got your back, go ahead and tell Saddam Hussein to go to hell, they wouldn't have. And if James Baker hadn't told Saddam Hussein, hey, man, I don't know, West Texas rules, if they're overproducing on your shared oil well, break their knees. What do I care, man? That's the name of the game, isn't it? That's how we do business around here. So, uh, you know, and of course, that was all in the aftermath. These war debts I'm talking about, he owed them, was all in the aftermath of the American-supported Iran-Iraq war, where America supported both sides of the Iran-Iraq war. And so, you know, Richard Haas can just pretend all day that the counterfactual is that Saddam Hussein and Bashar al-Assad and the Ayatollah and Gaddafi would all be regional superpowers now if we hadn't stopped them. But it's more plausible they'd all be rubbing butts in fields of flowers compared to what America has done under the control, literal control of Richard Haas and his friends in the George, uh, George W. Bush administration and H.W. Bush before that. Uh, they're the ones who have wrought all this crisis. And you know what? At the time of the invasion of Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein made an offer to Richard Pearl through a Lebanese businessman in London. And in fact, he did this twice. There are two different stories about this where Hussein essentially offered unconditional surrender. And by the way, I didn't mention, but uh, Habush and Sabri were, were the uh, intelligence minister and the foreign minister. And they were both CIA agents. I mean, assets, not officers, but they, you know, Saddam's top two guys worked for the CIA, were CIA informants essentially, and told them, we don't have any weapons. We're not backing Al Qaeda. None of this is true, man. You know, we'll do whatever you guys say. We know now from the CIA interrogator, John Nixon, that Saddam Hussein was essentially retired. He had kicked himself upstairs and had delegated his most of his government to these men, Habush and Sabri and Tariq Ali, um, and that he was retired writing a romance novel at the time and was essentially dictator in name only, a figurehead at that time. And don't you like that about Saddam Hussein? He's writing a love story. He's writing um, a, yeah. And, um, and so, you know, this is all bogus. And at the meeting in London, they told Richard Pearl, look, man, and this goes to show how innocent the Iraqis were at the time of the accusations against them, that they didn't know what the hell the war was about. Hey, look, man, if you really think we got weapons of mass destruction, I don't know what to tell you, but you can send in the FBI and the army 
not invade, but just to walk around and go wherever you want, look wherever you want. And if this is about oil, we'll happily sign mineral rights deals. Who do you got? Exxon, put them right up in first in line, man. We'll make a deal there. And if this is about democracy, well, we'll hold elections under international supervision. Just give us a little bit of time to make the transition. That was the Iraqis surrendering, unconditional surrender to the Americans. And they even said, and if this is about Israel, then we'll switch sides in the Israel-Palestine conflict and we'll stop backing Hamas and sending any money to, you know, families of suicide bombers and all this stuff that had been Hussein's policy before, which he sent, he sent money to the families of any Palestinians who died in violent conflict with the Israelis. So that meant a little old lady crushing her house with a bulldozer, but it also meant the families of suicide bombers too. And that was the part that the neocons had highlighted so much. And so they even said, look, we'll even betray the, Pal the Palestinians. We'll give up on that. We'll do whatever you want. Just don't invade. And Pearl said, you tell them we'll see in Baghdad and refused to accept Keith essentially an unconditional surrender. Unbelievable. Well, uh, there are so many books to read about a uh, lot of things. Why uh, should someone take the time and spend the money and get enough already time to end the war on terrorism? Well, look, I think everybody knows that in the 80s, America backed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and backed Saddam Hussein in the war with Iran and backed Iran, you know, the famous Iran-Contra scandal, backed Iran against Saddam a bit too. I think everybody knows that. Everybody knows we fought Iraq War One, and everybody knows that Bill Clinton bombed the hell out of Iraq for eight years straight and, and kept the sanctions, this kind of thing. Anybody who's interested in this sort of stuff at all knows this stuff. Um, and, and people are somewhat familiar with the rise of Al-Qaeda and their attacks on America, and they're familiar at least in some degree of our war in Afghanistan and Iraq War II and our other interventions in Libya, Syria, Somalia, Yemen. They've at least heard of these things. So the book is not full of like, um, you know, secret information. I got these documents about Operation Thus and Such you've never heard of before, kind of covert action like that. And I'm not a journalist who was in the wars telling a first-person account, and I'm not a soldier back from the war telling a first-person account. I'm essentially a critic who stayed home the whole time and watched all these wars from here and opposed them all along too. And I collected everything I hate about it all for 20 years in one place. And, and what it really should do, I hope, is draw one through line so that you see it's not all just ad hoc. There's a reason for all of this stuff that happens. And I start with Jimmy Carter because that's essentially my lifetime. Um, and I guess I was born under Gerald Ford's, you know, last months of Gerald Ford there. But anyway, um, you know, so many of these decisions start with the Carter administration. And then I draw the through line about, you know, how to understand why it is that they made the choices that they did to switch sides back and forth the way that they have and cause the wars that they've caused and the thinking behind them. And at the end of it, I'm pretty sure that you'll have to agree that it is enough of this. There's no way to essentially conclude that somehow there's a, we got to tie up these loose ends and somehow we can trust our government to fix what they've broken under this you know kind of ridiculous pottery barn foreign policy. And frankly, Keith, look at what's happening right now. And I didn't really think it was going to happen, but it is happening. They are pulling American troops out of Afghanistan. They have emptied the, the um, Kandahar Air Base and they're working on Bagram right now. And there's footage of GIs and you know Special Operations Forces and whoever all they are getting on planes 
and flying the hell out of there. And so this is America leaving in defeat, uh, you know, in this war after a 20 year war and, uh, and the future of Afghanistan is going to be ugly as hell too. And the Hawks will of course say that's because we ever gave up, but everyone else will know that that's because we let these yeah. men even try this in the first place. And that it was never going to work. That's why it didn't work. And that the people who said so all along, somehow we're going to tame the Afghans and turn their country into one compliant with American goals and wishes was always the fool's errand and crazy that we had no right to do it and never should have done it. And, you know, let's hope then that the momentum keeps up and people say, you know what, we want the hell out of Syria and Iraq. We want out of Somalia. We want out of Yemen. We want all of our special operations forces out of Africa and the Philippines and everywhere else. They're fighting Sunni insurgencies and just call the whole damn thing off. These are all regional problems, even though America is responsible for them. As I say, there's no way for us to take responsibility for them in any constructive way. We just have to butt out and let these things settle on their own and take care of themselves. And again, even after all of this, Bin Laden and them, they could have never had their caliphate in the first place. The worst that could happen was what did happen in eastern Syria and western Iraq. But that's over. It's America is the only thing standing in the way of the government in Damascus finishing taking over all of the rest of the country of Syria. And in Iraq, for what it's worth, uh, in the terrible relations between the Shiite government there and the minority Sunni faction under their thumb right now, the idea of the return of the Islamic State is impossible without the level of support for their efforts by the U.S. and our allies, as we saw under the Obama administration for the revolution in Syria. And so it really is time to just call it off. It never had to be this way. And, um, and, and what I really want out of that book, I want people to be able to say to each other, not, you know, it's not just for my fans and your fans to read. If you're already interested in what I have to say and what my guests have to say on my show and what we say at antiwar.com, I really want this to be for you to be able to give to your people that that would never listen to my show that aren't part of our libertarian world or our anti-war activism world or whatever it is and just say, hey, look, man, there's this book that says that we could just call it off. We never should have done all this and we should really just quit it and it'd be much better if we just quit it and and make that case to anybody. Picture any character you've got in your head, anywhere from left to right, any age, any race, any part of this country, whether they fought in the wars or whether they didn't. And, you know, I don't know. And I've had a lot of veterans, officers, and a list of guys who love the stuff. And uh, they're a substantial part of my audience now. Um, and they're as bad as what they've been through has been for them. They're grateful to have somebody shoot them straight and tell them what the truth is about what it was all for anyway. And so... I really hope that people get something out of it, Keith. Excellent. The book is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Thanks to everyone for watching. Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone, and the Libertarian Institute. Scott, thank you for your time as always. Thank you, my friend.